I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. This woman had a choice. Plead guilty and go home to her four children as a convicted felon or remain in prison and face decades for a crime she did not commit. This is the Regina Kelly story. Megan, you are busy this week. I am very busy this week. As we speak, I have boxes around me, Amy. And you're also in the process of possibly adopting a new friend. That's right. Oh, we are. So we're moving this week and we have started looking at dogs again. As you know, Kaya passed about seven months ago and we um, are ready, we think, to bring a new dog into the new home and we're looking forward to it. I'm ready for that too. Thank you. I can't wait for Toby to meet our new addition. As long as they're good with dogs. That's right. (laughs) All right, Megan, before we jump into today's case, let's acknowledge some of our patrons. Okay. Who do we have to thank today, Amy? All right. Today we have Carrie, who is a fellow New Jersey girl. Love our fellow Jersey girls. Carson from the UK. Penelope R., And Jenny, who listens with her girlfriend and her daughter. Love the family listeners, too. That's great. We're so lucky. That's such a cool thing they do. Yes. Thank you so much to our supporters. We really appreciate your help. Okay, now into the Regina Kelly story. 
Megan, have you ever heard of a movie called American Violet? Uh, Not only have I heard of it, but I show it in my classes. Oh, really? Yeah. I will tell you that today's case has to do with the true story of American Violet. Well, that makes perfect sense why I know it then. I'm like, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it was based on a true story. Got it. Yeah. And I think it came out maybe 2008, 9. Yeah, it's definitely about, you know, over 10 years now. So around that time, for sure. And I think this case will expose a lot of issues with our criminal justice system. So I think we'll be able to geek out a lot. Oh, yeah. This has a lot to do with my research, too. So all right. So I don't love the circumstances, just so you know, but I love the topics that we can talk about. Yes, me too. A mother by the age of 24, Regina Kelly worked hard to provide for her children. She had recently left an abusive relationship that she had been in for several years, and she was just trying to make a better life for her and her children. Regina and her children lived with Regina's mother in a public housing project in Hearn, Texas. Hearn, Texas is an impoverished rural community of about 5,000 in East Texas, about 120 miles northwest of Houston. Mm -hmm. In the fall of 2000, Regina was working double shifts as a waitress at a nearby restaurant, and she was getting ready to start junior college, and she recently completed her GED. So things seem to be going well. Yeah, well, so you think. Yeah. On November 2nd, 2000, a narcotics task force entered the restaurant where Regina was working. They handcuffed her and took her into custody. All the while, they refused to explain why she was even being arrested. And she thought it was because of unpaid parking tickets. I remember. I could imagine this being like a very dramatic scene. Did this happen in the movie? Yes, it did happen in the movie. I'm I'm just trying to think about the scene. But I'm thinking also, you'll explain, I'm sure, but she wasn't the only one. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah. It would be nearly two days before she even learned what she was being held for. She was being held on felony drug distribution charges. And as someone who didn't deal or even do drugs, she was shocked by this. Now, how did Regina end up in this situation? As you pointed out, Megan, she was not the only one. The housing project that she lived in was used to drug sweeps. Now, drug sweeps, we also know them as drug raids. They're just sudden, unexpected visits by the police except they often involved forced entry, and the aim is to find illegal drugs. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, these practices are commonplace in low-income minority areas. Oh, yeah, especially where she lived. Very, it was very commonplace there. And this particular sweep in November of 2000 was initiated by Derek Megris. He was a paid confidential informant, which is someone who provides information to the police, often in exchange for leniency or some other benefit. Now, I think you agree with me that using confidential informants in criminal investigations, not a great practice. They do it. I don't think it's a good practice. We've talked about this before. I think if you're going to use that, it should be in conjunction with a lot of corroborating evidence. Absolutely. Now, the rules vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction regarding Mm -hmm. the rules around these confidential informants. But often the police are relying on drug addicted individuals and or people who are immersed in criminal activity themselves. And of course, they are incentivized. It's akin to the jailhouse snitch, right? They have an incentive for leniency, for some type of consideration. So this is what, you know, taints the process. And it doesn't mean that they're always lying. It just means that we need to scrutinize people that are being incentivized, right? Yes. It was reported that the Robinson County District Attorney, John Paschal, was the driver of this whole operation. Mm -hmm. Now that is where Hearn is located. The district attorney, in the early 80s, he was arrested for driving under the influence, failure to pay his income taxes, and he also had a lien placed on his property. Okay. He was also sued for failure to pay a school loan. Then in 1987, he was indicted for stealing money from a check fund that his office oversaw. Despite this background, though, he was repeatedly elected as district attorney of Robertson County. Why is he so relevant here? Because his self-touted claim to fame was his many successful drug raids that sent dozens of what he referred to as, quote, 
hardened drug dealers to prison. Right. And in this particular bust, he told Derek that he needed him, Derek, to give up at least 20 people to, quote, work off a case of his own. Some sources even say he threatened Derek. Now, this is problematic for many reasons, especially because Derek was a drug-addicted young man with a history of mental illness, nonetheless. In the past, this DA, in fact, had Derek committed to a mental institution. So it was very well known who he was dealing with. This just reeks already. And we're only on page two, Megan. I know. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Like, I'm Buckle up. Yeah. Though Regina barely even knows this person who says that she's involved in illegal activity. She did know his aunt, who was the girlfriend of the father of Regina's children. So, you know, she and Derek's aunt had a contentious relationship. Maybe that's why she was named. Who knows? We can only speculate. Okay. It's possible that the DA was set on drug arrest at the time because the office had received a large federal grant for drug enforcement. Oh, of course. And what do they need to do? They need to generate arrests. Now, this was commonplace, right? I'm sure you teach about this. It helps fuel the initial war on drugs. Have you heard of the Burn Grant programs? Yeah, of course. So these were enacted in 1988, and they were designed to help states and local jurisdiction fight drugs and, of course, violent crimes that Mm -hmm. come from drug trafficking and other drug crimes. The program provided federal money in 29 specific what they call purpose areas. This included crime victim assistance and alternative to incarceration. However, most of the grants were intended for police activity. Mm -hmm. Specifically, a good deal of the money was based on the number, not the quality of drug arrests. Of course. So Derek pointed to 28 people at the request of the DA. Nearly all of them lived in Regina's housing project, and that's why the major sweep took place there. Oh, I can think of the, quote, request of the DA. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, Regina was only one of two women picked up in the sweep. The other people were men. When I was reading up on this, I found out the other woman was Irma Faye Stewart. Have you ever heard of her? No. So she's not famous, so to speak. Like her case didn't gain notoriety. However, her case was featured in the New Jim Crow. And I use that to teach in my race and crime class. And she uses that case as an example of why plea bargaining needs to be reformed. Got it. And we're going to talk about her more in just one second. But I just want to let you know that the judge did offer Regina Bond, but at 70000 that seems high for no prior. She had no priors, no violent crimes. Depends on how high level the drug charges are. If it's for trafficking, if there's a high mandatory minimum, yeah. they would, you know, it, it, it seems high, to be honest. Yeah. Yes. So Regina could not afford an attorney. So one was appointed to her by the court. Her lawyer urged her to plead guilty and take probation because the alternative, if she went to trial, she was looking at five to 99 years. Oh, wow. Now, this makes sense. If you're guilty. Yeah. Well, practically, too, even if you're innocent, I'm sure it still seems to, you know, someone on the outside like, yeah, you may be innocent, but this is still a good deal. You know, it's it's the system that we. Well, you just did a really beautiful setup because Stuart, the other woman from the raid, she had no one to look after her two children. She decided to take the deal and plead guilty. And so did six other people from the sweep. So they pled guilty to delivery of a controlled substance of more than four grams in a drug free zone. Now, she was, uh, Stewart was sentenced to 10 years probation, and she was required to pay $1,800 in fines and report to her parole officer monthly. But what I bet she didn't realize is that she would then lose her housing, too. Just Well, so you I know. don't think she realized any of the collateral consequences. But Regina, I don't want to say she was smarter because everyone's in their own situation. But Regina, she felt, you know, since she didn't do it, she had nothing to hide. She was not going to plead to something she did not do. So the other 20 or so men also pled not guilty. Right. Course of system. Yep. So most of them sat in jail awaiting trial. 
Regina wouldn't be released for about over a month. She just kept fighting for her freedom. Like, was this the right move for Regina? It's hard to say. If she took the plea, she would have had a felony record. She would have lost her government subsidized housing. And again, she had four kids. Yep. Plus, I think as a matter of principle, which I understand, she didn't want to plead to something she didn't do. Of course. Michelle Alexander talks about this type of situation in her book, The New Jim Crow, and she defines it as a dilemma, mm-hmm. not a choice. Yeah. Because she says the difference here is that people in this position, such as Irma Faye Stewart, Mm -hmm. because she highlighted her in the book, they're asked to choose between two or more equally undesirable outcomes. Yep. So it's no longer a choice. It's a dilemma. I agree. After sitting in jail for just short of a month, Regina's bond was lowered to $10,000. Wow. Unexplicably lowered from $70,000 to $10,000. I'm not sure why. Because there was not a lot of evidence. Yep. Mm -hmm. Things are starting to crumble. Yeah. Yes. At this time, Regina's mother was able to secure Regina's release by offering her land to a bond company. Regina was one of the lucky ones who had family who could even post bail. Most of these other individuals remained in jail. The first case from the sweep went to trial on February 19th, 2001. Very quickly, it became clear that the evidence was useless because it came to light that the confidential informant had lied. There were also many other issues that made him unreliable. I'll just highlight one of them, Megan. He used baking soda and water to make fake crack cocaine to use as evidence in support of the cases that he fabricated. Oh, sure. So luckily, within a few weeks, all of the cases were dismissed, except those who had pleaded guilty. Those who took a plea were stuck with the charge. Their pleas were considered to be binding in spite of the fact that there was no evidence to support their guilt. Megan, can you explain this? is allowed i can't explain this and it shouldn't be allowed i i really don't have a good explanation for that it's It's, shocking it's one of the one of the many consequences of pleading guilty Mm -hmm. is that you're you're kind of locked in and viewed in that light no matter what and as we often see the da dug his heels in yeah he publicly stated although he wouldn't be moving forward with the case and you know he said the state didn't have enough evidence to convict them beyond a reasonable doubt he said you know they're all guilty though yeah so everything good no not really Because now Regina's left to pick up the pieces. And as we know, there are lasting effects, even if you're jailed for a short time, even if charges are eventually dropped. Now, luckily, Regina had not been fired from her job. Many people probably would have been. But she decided to leave her job because she says she felt uncomfortable because those around her viewed her as a drug dealer. Well, because she was arrested in her place of employment and everybody knew. Exactly. It's a small town. There's also a family court case against her, if I recall. This was in the movie, so I don't know if this is one of those factual things. But at the same time as the criminal case, I believe the, the DA was also pursuing a family court case trying to take her children. If I'm not mistaken, that was part you, of the issue as well. You know what? You are correct because I remember at the end when we talk about the movie, yeah, I do talk about that a drop, but okay. I forgot about that. You're right. It's another form of coercion. Too. Yeah, it just shows that he was like, yep, I'm going to do something to you. The level of coercion is upped even more because it puts significant, it's double the financial expenses. I mean, it's a pressure cooker. Oh, yeah. And, you know, she applied to college and she was accepted, but then they found out that she had been arrested for drugs and they revoked her acceptance. She was also rejected as a teacher's aide because she couldn't get work in a high school. Her children were teased in school. Now, this other woman involved, Irma, right? Mm -hmm. Now, let's see. Did she fare any better? Because remember, she did take a plea. She was having a much worse time. Because of the plea, she was not eligible for food stamps. Mm -hmm. She could not get any uh, federal grant money for education. I would imagine she had trouble finding work. She had a record, right? Lost her housing. Lost her housing, barred from voting until two years after she completed the 10-year probation. And probably the harshest, 
as you mentioned, the housing, she'd been evicted from the housing for not paying rent. Mm -hmm. So her children had to reportedly sleep in various homes of friends and relatives. It's terrible. She also owed money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because on top of pleading guilty, there's fines, restitution, not in this case, but court costs. I mean, it's really a financial hold up. In, it in is. And, you know, she had a son who had asthma and she had to get medication for that. And she really struggled. As so many people do when they ha uh, when they are forced to plead guilty to drug crimes. Yep. So it's interesting. You see these two women. One took one path. One took the other. And they're both really not in a great situation. But in 2002, the American Civil Liberties Union filed a class action lawsuit charging racial discrimination in this situation, which came to be known as the Hearn Undercover Drug Bust. Yep. And Regina was named as the lead plaintiff in this case. The suit pointed out that the sweeps had led to the arrest of 15% of African-American men between the ages of 18 and 34 in Hearn, Texas at the time. She 15? 15%. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. And while the proceedings emphasized several issues, they did also highlight the issue with federal grant money being used to fight drugs. Right. So one of the lawyers for the Hearn plaintiffs, who's also the director of ACLU's Drug Law Reform Project, he said, quote, throughout America, burn grants are consistently used to target very low-level drug dealers for arrest and long-term incarceration. You have a drug task force whose goal is to arrest as many people as they can. Their funding stream is based on that, so they rely on confidential informants, and their racial profiling is staggering. He continues, because it's based on arrests, the incentive is to focus on arrests, and the more, the better. They have an incentive to go after low-level drug dealers, and it leads to civil rights offenses because they have quotas to fill, and that might entail cutting corners. Ugh. It's absolutely, I would say, point on, spot on. Yeah, that's why I had to read it yeah. verbatim, because yeah. I, I mean, there's no way to say it any better. No. And this civil action clearly exposed what many of the community members already knew, that there was widespread racism and corruption mm -hmm. by the DA's office. Right. An unknown settlement was reached in favor of the plaintiffs, so that is, I guess you could say, a win. But again, I mean, there's lasting effects of this. And there were even reports of harassment towards some of the plaintiffs involved in the suit. Right. So as Regina said in an interview, a lot of the guys quickly caught other drug charges right after and during the civil suit. Yeah. This happens all the time. It's like payback. It's punitive. It's retaliation. It's it's awful. Since the settlement, Regina has been very vocal and she considers herself a really a criminal justice advocate. Mm, yeah. Let's talk a bit about the movie. So after the release of the movie American Violet in 2008, the case gained renewed attention. Now, Regina likes to say that the film is what she would consider 90 percent accurate. That's pretty good. And I don't know if you knew this, but since you saw the movie, mm -hmm. many of the court proceedings were actually word for word. So when she fights to regain custody of her children, yes. it's word for word accounts of what happened. That's great. So you know how sometimes we see these movies that are Creative based- of license. <laughs> yeah. So it's nice to know that this movie it's was- like based on a true story. And then you read the true story. You're like, wait a second. That was exactly, nothing like that. Exactly. Yeah. I think this movie is probably- One of the better depictions. Which makes me want to see it more. What do we think? Uh, the DA, Paschal, uh, what do you think he had to say about this movie? <laughs> Oh, I'm sure that he he said it was a gross mischaracterization of what really happened and, you know, depicted him in a poor light and blah, blah, blah. Kind of. What he does say, quote, 
The only way I'd watch it, I'd have to be handcuffed, tied to a chair, and you would have to tape my eyes open. Okay. So, well. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what he thinks of it because he refuses to watch it. Okay. Which seems defensive to me, but anyway. I don't I don't buy it. I think he watched it, <laughs> but okay. Well, speaking of former DA, Paschal. Oh, former. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Where is he now? Well, he's not a DA anymore. (laughs) He did continue in his position for many years after the scandal. I remember. That was part of the movie. I think it said like he was reelected. I'm almost positive. Yeah. All right. So he served as prosecutor. Then he went into private practice. But as of late 2015, he could no longer practice law. Did they revoke his license? Well, because he pled guilty to a felony charge of misusing money that belonged to an estate for which he served as an executor. You got to be kidding me. This would be like three strikes and you're out. How many times did he? It seems like he had multiple charges and allegations and then a conviction for misusing money. Megan, I tried so hard to find out where is he today. I can't find anything. All I could find was that he's currently residing in Texas probably trying to keep a low profile. And according to the Texas bar, he resigned in lieu of discipline on 3-22-16. I wonder if discipline or like they were going to take away his license or... Well, well, remember I said he got that, he pled guilty to the felony charge? Yeah. So as a result of the charge, he spent 30 nights behind bars. Mm -hmm. He was placed on 10 years probation, Mm -hmm. issued a fine of $1,000. And he also had to pay restitution, but I could not find exactly how much that was. Geez, I wonder if he lost his housing or his right to vote, like access to all well, the things that people lost. Who it's interesting were... you say that because, you know, I'm thinking back to Irma Faye Stewart mm-hmm. and her punishment was pretty similar as far as how long she spent and how much money. She was actually innocent, though. She didn't do a thing. Well, that's what and I was thinking of. And she actually did something no. and they have the same punishment. But she had all the collateral consequences exactly. that went with it. And that and was my I'm point. Sh- I'm sure he's doing just fine. So what about Regina? What is Regina up to? Well, Regina lives in Houston with her children. And as she puts it, she continues to fight injustice. She's working on a book about the justice system, also working with several organizations with the goal to help change laws in Texas. Mm -hmm. She does a lot of speaking across the country regarding the rights of people wrongfully accused of crimes, um, about wrongful arrests. She also conducts trainings for defense attorneys to show them how to better connect with minority clients. Oh, that's great. Isn't that cool? I love that. She also received a bunch of awards and recognition for her efforts. Mm-hmm. She serves on the board of directors at uh, for the National Legal Aid and Defender Association. She's the chair of the client council. She works as staff for the Lone Star Legal Aid of Texas. I mean, she's wow. she's doing a lot. She's one of the lucky ones that was able to take this negative situation and Turn it into something. That's Turn it into something really positive. Yeah, that's helping other people. Right. So do you know that Hearn was not the first or the most notorious of these drug task force abuses? Have you ever heard of the Tulia case? No. The Tulia 46. Now, this, it shocks me how many people don't know about this. Mm. So this case was part of my dissertation. That's how I know about it. Oh, okay. So it's, it's what's known as a group exoneration because mm-hmm. there were 46 individuals. So in July of 1999 in Tulia, which was another small town in Texas, there was a drug sweep that included 46 people, 39 of them African-American, all based on the word of one single informant. I can't can't even believe this with the one informant. And the amount of people that were caught up in this was 10% of the town's black population. Wow. So there's a great PBS documentary on the case. So I'm not going to go into the case. Obviously, this episode is about Regina, but... This case came before Hearn, Texas, so I think Mm -hmm. it kind of set the stage for things. Mm -hmm. Like, in this case, they had their own version of D.A. Paschal. But this guy was even worse, if you could believe it. This guy, Tom Coleman, at one point named Texas Lawman of the Year, he himself went undercover to, quote, catch drug dealers. 
He worked alone and there were no surveillance or anything to corroborate the arrest. He literally just lied and planted drugs on individuals. That's sh- it's shocking, but it, it's not. I mean, as if that's not bad enough. He also used drugs during the sting. Mm-hmm. He, like I said, he manufactured evidence and he also had sex with some of the female defendants. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, there are articles that describe him as the most racist man in Texas. So luckily though, in 2003, a Texas court avoided 38 of the Tulia arrests. A few of them had already been dismissed prior to this. And in 2005, Coleman was convicted of perjury when a jury found out that he lied about his own arrest for theft during a hearing on the drug cases. Unfortunately, he did not serve any time in prison. He got 10 years probation. So I bring this up because it's because of cases like Hearn and Tulia that by 2006, every last narcotics task force in Texas had been disbanded after a long reform fight at the Texas legislature. Wow. So I think that's kind of good to see that, you know, this came out. All right, Megan. So I'm, I've been talking for a while. I want to hear from you now. Oh, I mean, I have a million things to say, but do you have a specific question? Um, did the system get it right? I think not. <laughs> no, but the system is not right. So there's many different problems and there's several different layers. First of all, mandatory drug laws are problematic and they are not doing what they were designed to do. So the initial you know, aim was to be able to target and track those you know, high level drug dealers, kind of the, if you will, drug kingpins. Mm-hmm. And that's what I thought was going to happen when I went into probation, by the way, uh, which was, oh gosh, 2003, 2002, around there. And what, ha- you, what actually happens in reality is that they sweep into this net all of these people who are either very low level, not even dealers, I'd say a lot of- Users? Uh, Users, but also like transporters. So like someone very, you know, poor who's in a bad situation, who's just going to make a drug run for someone, you know, they're basically like mules in Mm -hmm. in many ways. And so they they target and they wound up or they wind up incarcerating those people. So they're not doing what they're intended to do Mm -hmm. at all. So the mandatory drug laws are one of the three reasons why they're problematic. (laughs) The second one is they allow for, again, for confidential informants and other to point a finger. And then so it's not just incarcerating people who are low level or you know, not making a lot of money, but incarcerating people who are innocent. Mm-hmm. And the, the third reason I think they're very problematic is because they remove all discretion from a judge and put it all in a prosecutor's hand. Mm-hmm. And so that allows prosecutors to engage in this coercive plea bargaining. Now, all plea bargaining is somewhat coercive, but when you have mandatory minimum sentences, it becomes ever more so coercive and, again, places a prosecutor in the top position of power which I think is one of the worst flaws, hands down, of our system. I agree. And for our listeners who maybe you just started listening, we've definitely said this in the past, but people might not realize, but the majority of cases do not go to trial. What are we talking? 97% to 98% of cases are settled by plea bargaining. This yeah. is problematic. Yes, absolutely. Because it's a coercive practice and you know, prosecutors are upcharging people. People are caught in these, quote, dilemmas, mm-hmm. right? And the research shows that when people do go to trial, they usually face, when they're convicted, what's called the trial penalty, which mm-hmm. means they receive a worse sentence because they exercise their constitutional right to go to trial. Yep. Okay. Then there's also bail. So <laughs> bail is supposed to be to ensure that people come back to court, right? It's not supposed to be punitive. It's not supposed to be that, you know, you set an amount someone can't get out of. But what's happening is these high amounts, like ridiculously high amounts for people who are living in public housing or on other forms of you know, uh, welfare or assistance, they can't afford to get out. So really it just becomes a punishment Mm -hmm. to punish people for not having money. Wow, sorry. I know, we're getting heated now. (laughs) It's actually getting hot in here. I'm like, wow. 
I mean, when people ask us if you could reform anything, it's always plea bargaining and bail. Yeah, I go to appeals now, too. But yeah, that's true. Yeah. But plea bargaining, bail. And by the way, I want to say that I'm not I'm not trying to say that prosecutors shouldn't have power. There is great power that comes with the job and rightfully so. But they have, in my opinion, right now, just too much power. You're absolutely right. And the only thing I want to add to that is I think when we talk about drug reform, I think we need to look at drug use as a health issue and focus more on treatment and not punishment. Here's the thing I ask my class because I teach about, you know, I teach policy and we cover drugs and sentencing reform in a number of classes. So what I say is it's interesting now because with the opioid and return of the like heroin epidemic, it's now being treated like a health crisis. Well, because and and I will say it, but when it was the 80s and 90s and it was crack, then it was a punishment issue. And I think the difference mm-hmm. is that, you know, this crisis affects a majority of white Americans mm-hmm. and that crisis affected a lot of black Americans. And I think that's why it's treated differently. I'm just going to say it. I mean, if you look at the evidence, it's it's right there in front of us. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, mm-hmm. you can't ignore it. Yeah. And, drug crisis you know, is a public health crisis and it should yeah. be treated so. And it's clear that current drug policies are failing, right? As evidenced by mass incarceration, mm-hmm. public health crisis, and the marginalization of minority and poor communities. So clearly... Plus, it didn't do anything to put a dent in the drug market either. Like, when I when I look at the studies, like, you know, was uh, how, how significant was it on deterring, you know, drug <laughs> use or drug transportation or drug sales? Not really. Nope. One thing it did do, it helped some people in political power get to higher places. Um, So, Megan, not every episode is relevant to talk about theories. Right. Do you see any room for theory discussion here? Yeah, I do. Labeling theory and conflict theory. So labeling theory in that, you know, people are labeled as criminal Mm -hmm. drug dealers um, and then they're treated so by the system and then that label follows them. And because of it, all those consequences, the Mm -hmm. stigma, the, you know, all of the the ripple effect, Mm -hmm. domino effect. I also see a little bit of conflict theory here. When I teach conflict theory, I teach it as, you know, certain people make certain laws to preserve their own interest and focus on marginalized group and penalize those people and keep those people, you know, at bay. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm seeing here is conflict theory in that certain groups are more marginalized than others. And we we talked, I think, at length about which group here was. So Mm -hmm. that's the kind of theory that I see here. I wouldn't use theory to explain any of the the supposed offenders. Yeah, because they didn't offend. Exactly. (laughs) So that theory here actually goes to how these people became criminalized in the first place and punished. I think that's a great point. I hadn't thought about conflict theory. That's a really good point. I think it's worth talking about how the failure of the war on drugs it has led to some new ideas and alternative models, which I think are starting to show some success. Yeah. You know, because I was just talking about how current drug policies are failing and all this awful stuff is happening. But let's take a minute to talk about ways that we've actually improved since the war on drugs began. Okay. So there has been decriminalization. Yes. We have seen that. Yes. Especially, of course, with marijuana. Absolutely. So even if we don't see, you know, the states that have decriminalized, we see charges that are now misdemeanors that used to be felony charges. Correct. Yeah. Or even, you know, people getting sent to drug courts instead. Drug courts, there's a couple thousand, and they show great success with treating um, an offender because it's collaborative. You have a judge, a prosecutor, defense attorney, a treatment provider, possibly a probation officer. Mm -hmm. But all these people are working together to ensure meaningful rehabilitation, which is why I think they have great success. Yeah, it's a holistic approach. Yeah. And I also think when when we talk about treatment, Mm -hmm. people are more inclined to seek treatment without fear of punishment. 
So I think it's important when we're looking at this from the public health standpoint, Mm -hmm. decriminalization helps us in that aspect as well. Sure. So does deinstitutionalization, which is using prisons less for drugs and using treatment for it. Exactly. Look, Amy, at this point, there's a lot of blowback. What happens is the pendulum, you know, swings too far. So when it was prior to the drug war, maybe it was too far towards rehabilitation that, you know, it wasn't working in that regard either. And, you know, you... We have had real drug crises at certain points. I think we're probably in the middle of one right now. But policy shouldn't be all the way one way or the other. So I think right now what we're feeling is kind of a backlash against these punitive policies. So let's, you know, we're swinging it back towards the other way. And we could get a meaningful balance if we wound up in the middle. I don't know about you. I'm not saying never punish people for drug offenses. I don't actually believe that. Yeah. Um, But I think reserve punishment for specific offenses and, and for, you know, very serious and harmful offenses. But where people are also self-harming, that's where treatment should come in. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, what's the point? Yeah, I think diversion is a very important part of this conversation. There's definitely a way to divert people yeah. and there's a way to help them rehabilitate and to not spend, you know, all your tax dollars on incarcerating people who are committing crimes against themselves. You know, this is like when we talk about victimless crimes, mm-hmm. we're punishing people for the victimless well, crimes. Just to push back on that a little bit, right? One, we know that people who are under the influence of drugs are more likely to commit crime. And we also know that people who commit crime are more likely to use drugs. So it is a public safety issue from mm-hmm. that standpoint. So that's why people have to understand we're not going, it's not that we're just going easier on people. For drug offenses, we're trying to help everyone. If you treat the drug offender, right. they're less likely to recidivate, which makes communities safer in general. Which is good policy. Good policy. All it right. Is. All right. On that note, Megan, um, thank you so much. And before we head out today, Megan, I think we have some questions. What do we have? Yeah, we do. We have a few. Let's start. The first question is, I know that you ladies talk about some of the courses that you teach regularly. But are there any courses that you have not taught yet that you would like to? Fun question. Amy, you want me to start or you? Um, you can go, Megan. I want to think about it. Okay. I have two that I would like to teach. Um, I have One that I've been talking about forever, and that's crime and media. And I think I've literally been talking about that for years. But now I'd like to incorporate podcasting into that as well because of what we do. You know, before my idea was kind of focused on you know, press and movies and whatnot. But now I think I have a more, you know, uh, well-rounded approach to that. I'd also like to teach, I've never taught this, just a basic criminal law class that focuses only on criminal law um, or a combo of crim law and constitutional law. So, you know, I've touched upon that. We touch upon those in all of our classes, but I'd love to focus in on that topic just for a full semester. How about you, Amy? I don't know what the course would be called, but I would love to teach a course. You know how we taught comparative systems between the U.S. and the U.K.? Yes. I would love to teach a course that compares the differences between states, because I find it so interesting when we look at different policies and statutes and the way we punish people, the way we treat people upon reentry. There's so much variation. And I think that would be a really hard class because there's so many states, obviously. But if I could figure out a way to consolidate the information. I think that would be super cool. I think that's a super cool idea. I agree with you. Any idea what it would be called? (laughs) (laughs) State of crime. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, no, I think that's a good idea, though. It's like one of the things we always teach in our courses about crime being relative from place to place, time to time and state to state. So nice idea. I like it. Um, You also know how much I love teaching in prison. So I would love to teach a class about post-secondary education 
in correctional facilities. Mm. And actually, I think one of our colleagues on the other campus teaches a class like that. I'm not sure exactly what the syllabus looks like, but it's something I might be interested in. Both great ideas, Amy. Um, So when I say post-secondary education in prison, I would love to talk about different states and what states offer college programs in prisons. And more importantly, the value of getting a college degree for those who are incarcerated. Now I'm talking about both individuals who will go home and those who are sentenced to life and the value of an education. As of right now, I don't know of any in-person master's programs in prison. You can get them via correspondence. You can actually get even a PhD via correspondence. Megan, one of our lifer buddies at Rahway is currently getting his PhD via correspondence, which just means everything's done through the mail. That's right. Yeah. Hey, it's a good start. Yeah. All right, Megan, we have any other questions? We do. We have two more. The second one is, are there any theories that can explain what I would consider unexplainable due to the horrific nature of the crime, such as why someone would kill a loved one, including a parent, sibling or child? Amy, do you want to take this one? Yeah, I think sometimes it seems inexplicable because we can't imagine, right? A lot of crimes we hear about, of course, are beyond our comprehension. But when you talk about killing a loved one seems particularly heinous. I think it really is situational because we've seen cases of family annihilators where an individual had an extreme mental illness or a personality disorder. We've seen cases where there was a lot of strain in an individual's life and they just... I guess we could say snapped because the pressures kept building on financial and, you know, others. Sometimes it has to do with just, you know, something biological mixed with something in an individual's environment and it creates a perfect storm. Um, Megan, I know you've actually taught some of these cases when you talk about serial killers, right? Yeah. The, The truth is actually the way I would answer it, almost every theory can explain why someone kills a loved one. It could be a utilitarian crime. It might be, you know, the product of uh, an emotional crime. It could be revenge, you know. So really, there's it's possible that almost all the theories that we cover could explain situation, as you said, situationally, why these crimes happen. Thank you for the question. And I think we have one more question today, Amy. Sorry. Okay, we have one more question, Amy, and this one's a little lighthearted. I like it. Aside from your passion for teaching, researching, and podcasting about crime, what other hobbies or what is your favorite hobby, something you do for fun outside of this field? I have a couple of things. Aside from happy hour, I love painting. So I take these painting classes all the time. I paint at home. James actually bought me an easel for one of my birthdays. I am terrible at it, but I absolutely love it. And I keep trying. And in the summer, obviously, like we're, you know, outdoors people. So we like to hike, kayak, all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, in the winter, I definitely go to painting, obviously reading. Um, I read like a ton. And hopefully my new hobby soon will be playing with our new dog. Aww. And I don't think you're terrible at painting, just for the record. That's very sweet. I really am. But thank you. Mine is, oh, I love, love reading. I love reading memoirs. And I love reading nonfiction. Being outside. Um, I like to run, Megan. Me and Jordan just completed a 5K. I know. I was actually really impressed. Um, Jordan's eight, right? Yeah, but by completed, I mean... She complained the whole time and said she will never do it again while I tried to <laughs> encourage her. So that's what I mean by completed. But hey, we got it done. Yeah. So um, yeah, but Amy, yeah, I love. Yeah. Go ahead. You've done. Haven't you done either a marathon or a half marathon? I've done the New York City Marathon and I did a half oh. marathon in every borough in New York. So 
Yeah. I, I, didn't even, I don't even think I knew that. Megan will be training with me for the next uh, marathon. Amy, I have to train for a 5K <laughs> walk, just so you know. So <laughs> I don't think so, but I commend you. And thank you for the lighthearted question. We appreciate those as well. Thank you again so much for your questions. And thanks for listening today. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, edited by Jose Alfonso. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include Essence.com, PBS.org, NPR, The Eagle, The Austin Chronicle, ACLU.org, The Texas Observer, FriendsofJustice.org, and the National Legal Aid and Defender Association. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.